0: open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's pray. Father, as always, we are so grateful. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that's given to us in your word. Father, many things, in fact, most everything that's in your word are things that we would not know any other way except you have revealed them to us, and then preserve them for us through all of these years, that we today may know them in the same way that those who lived before us a thousand years ago may know them, and those who come after us may know them. We pray, Lord, that these truths will continue to encourage our hearts, Lord, be beneficial to us in so many ways. We look forward, Father, as always, to the reading and the studying of your word. We do ask these things in the name of Christ, Amen. Paul writes in chapter fifteen. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So as Paul has written many instructions to this very troubled church that is involved in many forms of sin, and there has been great division and there has been uh, prejudice being showed towards people of different classes based on income or status and all those things, as Paul is set to set all those things straight and to basically scold them and to correct their waywardness both in thought, belief, as well as behavior, Paul wants them to understand, again, that everything he has said to them in this letter hinges on the historical reality of Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. If that had not happened, then dismiss everything else. It doesn't matter. Because it's not true. That's what he's getting at. What we believe is based in historical fact. Christianity has always been that way, has always stated that. We have always been the, the religion that has always challenged the world to disprove what we believe. Not because we believe that it is consistent philosophically, though it is, but because of what it's based on. It's not based on some individual having some kind of dream that we couldn't verify whether they had the dream, much less what the dream was. This isn't based on someone's vision because of some kind of mental state they were in or because they had gone eight days without sleep or whatever the case may happen to be. That what he is giving to us is rooted in reality. It is rooted in historical fact. And so then as believers, that's why we then say, and we should be able to say, that we believe what we believe because it's true. The individual who is the Muslim, or the individual who is the Buddhist, or the individual who is the Mormon, whatever whatever name of religion you want to put in the blank, so to speak, they may say the words... I believe what I believe because it's true. But they can't bank on that. Because it, it cannot be upheld under scrutiny. There are way too many inconsistencies and corrections that have to be made along the way. One can easily point out the, the fallacy and the weakness of whatever arguments they want to make. And the reason for that is because they're not rooted in reality. Reality maybe a few historical incidents here and there they can point to, but when you begin to look at the details, it very, very quickly falls apart. In the society we live in today, it is true we live in a time where many people would prefer the stance that they now take, which is, when it comes to any religion, no one can really know, as long as it works for you, and you're not hurting anybody, it doesn't matter. Or it's okay. The problem with that is the destiny of your soul is dependent on whatever you believe, being true or not true. And that's a pretty big gamble. Of course, what much of the world is doing is then they simply do away with the idea of the soul. That this is all there is. That there is nothing beyond this life. Of course, then the philosophical problem with that is that then makes life absolutely meaningless. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're faithful to your husband or wife or if you're not. If you are, your choice. Good for you. If you're not, what's the problem? When it's all over, it's over. Nobody cares. Who cares about the hurts that people went through who were born and died in the 1800s? It just doesn't matter. So many individuals who are at least in tune with that sometimes kind of hesitate. They don't want to go to that point because they understand that that is a reality of things. Because of Christ's resurrection, his followers have hope for eternal life in God's presence, a life that has already begun and has proved its power in Christ's community. What we have, what we possess now, is because Christ is risen from the dead. So in the first 11 verses, Paul argues for the fact of the resurrection. He's making a case that Christ's resurrection was observed over a period of time in a variety of settings by a variety of trustworthy people and groups. Before I get to the details of that, let me quickly go through what he says preceding that. Because again, what does Paul say? Number one, in verse one, he wants to remind them of the gospel. It is not that they have forgotten it in the sense that they intellectually don't remember it. They remember it, but he wants to bring it back to the forefront. He wants them to understand that everything hinges on the the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have received the gospel. We believe in the gospel. We have fellowship with God because of the gospel. We rejoice in our salvation because of the gospel. So we have received the gospel, and that is on which we stand. If the gospel is untrue, we have nothing to stand on. It makes no sense for us to gather together here. It is absolutely pointless if there is no resurrection. So it makes a difference, a huge difference. He says in verse 2 about the gospel, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. The bottom line is this, is that the Bible presents to us a picture of salvation where we are saved and being saved at the same time. I am completely saved and that no matter what point in my life I die, I'm going to be with the Lord because I'm saved. But I'm also being transformed into the image of Christ. I'm continually being saved by God. And also, his saving power remains steadfast. So once again, at any point in my life, I will be with the Lord when I die, even if I die in the middle of committing a sin. Now, that's not my goal in life. But even if I, by chance, was talking to Robert and lying to him, and I suddenly have a heart attack and die, and maybe that's the Lord's judgment on me for lying to him, I don't know, but I'm going to be in heaven. And And it's not because God disregards my lie. He never did that. That lie, he then had already placed on Christ and punished him as if he had given that lie. And my sin has been paid for. And so I put my trust in that, all of my trust in that. When he says, unless you believed in vain, there is this idea, and I guess the easiest way to present that would be that there are those who will say the words that they believe in Christ, but they may not truly believe. The idea of the word believe, again, is not to just intellectually acknowledge that something is true, but but the way that the Bible uses the word believe is you place your trust in it. I place my trust in the gospel being true. And so all of my hopes then are there. If I believed in vain, uh, the idea is, is that there, there was nothing in my belief. There was no, no real trust. It was just empty words. It would be an easy way to say it. And then, of course, he begins to deal with the basics of the gospel. And, and we'll, we will definitely go over this again next week and probably the week after. Uh, but the gospel is simple but profound and important because it's all rooted in historical fact. This is what God actually did for us. This was not some dream that that Paul had and that we're trusting in this in a metaphysical way. No, this is what actually happened. And that is Christ died for our sins. We know he died. And then the Bible makes it clear to us as God reveals to us that God placed on him our sin. So he died for my sin. I know that to be true because that's what God has revealed. And that's what God has told us. Also, It says that when Christ died for our sin, it was done according to the scriptures. So this was not some last-minute plan. This is what has always been in the works. This was always the plan of God. And we'll have more on that in the future as well. But then not only did Christ die, but he was buried. Why was he buried? Because he was dead. That's what you do with people who die. You bury them. He was buried, again, according to the scriptures, in the way the scriptures mandated. And then... He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. So with that, he takes the last part of that, which is, I guess you would say, the most unbelievable. Because all of us can easily believe somebody died. And all of us can easily believe that somebody was buried. That's not really something that anybody would question. But this they would question. He was raised from the dead. So again, when we look at that, and we look at the phrases... Uh, that he says in verse 3 that all these things were done in accordance with the Scripture. Let me just kind of read to you very rapidly through several different passages in the Old Testament. So I believe all the references are there in your notes. I am not going to wait for you to look them up, uh, just so you know that. Uh, So I'm just going to read through them. But here, a small portion of what the Scripture says about the coming of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who would strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Behold, my servant shall shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and from this form beyond that of the children of mankind. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt and the foal of a donkey. And behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim, these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. One of the things I think that is true of that of those passages I read is because and, and this is important because sometimes we think, Sometimes believers think that they don't really know that much about the Bible, and they really, they really can't sit and explain anything. But I bet that for most of you who've been believers for 10 years or more, when I was reading from Isaiah, knew exactly what he was talking about. You, immediately in your mind, you were thinking of the Christ child being born in Bethlehem. You were immediately understanding that the Bible talked about that he would come and where he would be born, and that that was fulfilling of the Scripture. When I read the passages where it talked about his image being marred, you weren't sitting there wondering, well, who's that talking about? You all knew who that was talking about. You understood who that was. Well, that's Christ. And if we go on and read even more familiar passages, going into Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 and other passages, you would have understanding. If you were in the midst of an individual who had no clue what the Bible was talking about, you would be able to explain it. You you may not be able to give 100 points of background. You can give 20 points of background. You'll be able to explain it because you understand it. And you also understand it theologically. You understand why Jesus had to die. You understand that it wasn't just some guy getting a raw deal because the Pharisees didn't like him and they just murdered him. No, you also understand that Jesus gave his life, that he allowed them to arrest him, that he allowed them to torture him. That he allowed them to put him to death. That he did so willingly. That he was obeying his father who had sent the son so that we then could be reconciled to him. You would understand all those things theologically. Maybe even if you've only been a believer for five years. Or maybe some of you only three years. You would understand those things. You understand so much more than you think that you do. We need to stop selling ourselves short because it's a lie of the devil to get you and I to close our mouths. You don't have to worry if anyone is impressed with how much you know, because it just doesn't matter. Our job is to reveal what we know to be true. Let God take care of the rest. Remember what the Bible says in the book of Romans, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. and, And that's to all those who believe. It doesn't say that the presentation of the gospel is the power of God. Some people will present the gospel much better than I'll be able to. I might be able to present the gospel than some of you. It's not about the presentation. Oh, it's true. We want to make sure we have the facts straight, make sure we have a good understanding of them, that we make sense of what we're saying. But the power is not in your ability to persuade. The power is not in the vocabulary that you use. The power is not in you being able even to follow up with the right questions. You might blow it left and right. It's of no importance. God is pleased to use us in our imperfectness, which is always present. And the power is in the message itself. We ask that the Lord will bless the the presentation of the gospel. We ask the Lord to prepare their heart. And then we leave it with the Lord. And we may follow up again one day if we have opportunities and talk to them, asking them if they've thought about what we've said. Perhaps they have questions that we didn't answer, but we can answer if they were to ask them. But that is the power of God. That is the transforming life historical event that all of us believe in that we all have in common and that we all share and understand and because that is true for those of us who are believers here this morning would declare that this is true and this is why I believe and the challenge has always been if you could literally disprove the resurrection of Christ then not only would I no longer believe then I would realize I have nothing to believe in. It doesn't matter what I believe. Paul does something very important here. He launches his theological argument. The theological argument is that Christ died for sins, you know, the purpose of his dying. He launches his theological argument from the platform of eyewitnesses account that he himself was a part of. And he parallels it with the promise of the scripture. I don't remember which pastor said this, but I thought this was an excellent phrase or, or a couple of sentences. He said, Paul then places those who deny the resurrection as opponents of the Christian faith. They are not arguing against Paul's interpretations, but against God's historical actions through Christ. So when it comes to, there are, again, maybe there are several churches Christian churches that meet. And they are led by men and women who do not believe in the resurrection. That is not a matter of interpretation. That is a false statement. It's to to mislead. Those individuals are not just Christians of a different type. They're not just Christians who have a different opinion. They are denying the actual faith period. They are against Christ. They are against the Bible. They are in need of salvation. It is true that there may be some individuals who are close to being believers or maybe who are brand new believers who are being misled. But in most cases, the individual who repeats these things or says this is what they hold to, they may claim to be Christians all they want. And others may get upset when you say, no, they're not a Christian, because they'll say, well, who gives you the right to say what they believe in their heart? Uh, Well, actually, I'm not really judging what they believe in their heart. He's actually expressed it. And what he's explained to me is what he doesn't believe in his heart. And that doesn't make him a Christian. It makes him against Christianity. He's not neutral. He's against it. That is why, and you're familiar with them, Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell and many other individuals, who were in their own ways, were trying to find ways as non-believers to just get rid of Christianity. And what they were all told somewhere along the way was there's one thing, there's a linchpin, you disprove this one thing, all of it falls apart. And it's the resurrection of Christ. And all of them put together whatever intellectual powers they had and some of them are pretty smart to do that one thing and in the end they all now stand as believers declaring boldly in the truth what Paul has declared concerning the gospel let me read to you a very famous sermon this would be from Peter the apostle and it says this in Acts 10 he opened his mouth and he said truly I understand that God shows no partiality But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are certain things in the Christian faith that we call the fundamentals of the faith, that you must believe them to be a Christian, period. There are many other things that we can have differences, even of opinions on, that are biblical issues that does not determine whether or not an individual is a Christian or not. You and I, as we've been through many uh, sermons on the whole gift of tongues, we may have disagreements on that. But whatever it is you believe about tongues is not considered fundamental to being a Christian. No one would say to, to me, what? You don't believe tongues just for now? You're not even saved. I mean, Some, might, some who, who's misled might say that, but no one says that. I don't say to an individual who believes in tongues, What? You believe and speak in tongues? You're not even a Christian. I, I would never say that, because that, that has no bearing on it. But there are some fundamentals of the faith, some very important large doctrines that everything hinges on. And this is one of them. Let me share with you a story that I came across. I liked it a lot. I hope you like it. There was a professor. He was, I guess, a professor of kind of philosophy, theology, that kind of thing in, in a school. And he had a pretty large class. And so he had a, had a pretty large jar that he had set before the class. And he had some, you know, large rocks. And he kind of put them all in, in, the, in the jar and kind of filled it up. And he said, is the jar full? And everyone in the class said, well, yes, it's full. Then he reaches down and he pulls out some pebbles. And he pours the pebbles in and he shakes a little bit and pours some more pebbles in. Until the pebbles get to the top. And he goes, now is the jar full? Well, there were fewer who said yes. Didn't know what was going to happen next, but like, yeah, it's full. Then he reaches underneath his podium and pulls out some sand. Pours the sand in there and kind of shakes it up, you know, so the sand, or to the bottom, he pours, and then, it's, and then it, it fills all to the top. And then he asks the question, is it full? Well, now they're afraid to answer. They don't know what's coming next, but it's like, a couple people, yes? <laughs> then he reaches back down and pulls out a pitcher of water. Pours it in there, and of course, until it fills up, he says, is it, is it full now? Well, no one said anything, but they all went. So then he said, what is the point? young man raises his hand and he says, well, it's pretty obvious. You may think that your life was too full for one more thing, but it's not. And a lot of the class, like, and the professor goes, no, that's not the point at all. And he pulls uh, pulls out another big rock and says, if you don't put the big rocks in first, there's no room for the big rocks at the end. And they're all like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? What it has to do with is this. The doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a large rock. And if you don't put that in your life first, if that's not fundamental, and you say, well, I'm going to wait till later, and you have all these other things, even other doctrines, in the end, there's no room for that. And when there's no room for that, you will die in your sin and go to hell. There are many men and women, most of the ones I'm familiar with are men, most of them are dead now, academics, who for all of their brilliance, who probably had more of the Bible memorized than I ever will, would probably be able to argue circles around me on any given debate, who were intelligent, and their intelligence would never be questioned, who had all of these small little issues all settled in their minds, philosophically and theologically. But there was no resurrection of Christ, and there was no room to stick it in. They didn't come to believe in the resurrection of Jesus later. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't happen. True, God can transform anyone. Usually what that means is the glass jar is broken, and then you start over again. But if we don't take care of the big rocks, there won't be any room in it later. So I don't know where you are as a Christian, or as one who proclaims himself to be a Christian, but we do have to ask ourselves a question. Do you really believe Jesus came back from the dead Do you really believe that after being in the tomb for three days, with no medical assistance, nothing, that this man rose again from the dead? I can tell you for myself, I absolutely believe that with all of my heart, mind, and soul. And there may be those who declare that I am a fool, and it's okay. They're wrong. I don't say that because I think I'm better than they are or because I'm smarter than they are, because I may not be. But I know what God has said, and I put all of my trust and faith in him because he has never lied, and he will never let us down. So make sure that in your life, before you get caught up in all the small issues, theological or otherwise, make sure you have the most important things settled in your life, because that is the foundation of your life and your faith in Christ. Because remember, many of these academics that I've read about who had no room for the resurrection in the beginning and there was no room for the resurrection in the end, their lives, even on earth, just completely fell apart. And it was a life of misery. A life of absolute rejection and betrayal and sadness and even depression. And so I want to challenge you to make sure that you are standing on the right side of the truth of the word of God and that you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For those of us who believe, and we come across those who do not believe in the resurrection, do not mock them, do not make fun of them, but pray for them and ask that God will open their hearts and minds. Do all you can to convince them of the truthfulness of the Bible and of the Word of God. You can't make them believe. Remember that for many of us, the proof of the truthfulness of the gospel, or I should say the evidence of that, is still the transformed life, that this living Christ, this living Savior, has been transforming me and is transforming me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness, and again, that we can hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Lord, that Jesus is raised from the dead, even though for some of us who have been believers for a long time, that are that's a phrase that we have uttered literally tens of thousands of times. It is a phrase that for most of us we don't even think a second thought about it because we are at a point in our life that it's, it's not an assumption. It's just We just know it to be true. And there's no questioning in our hearts. But Father, there may be some who still have huge questions about that. And so Father, for those of us who have these issues settled, Father, we pray for them. We pray that you would cause them to think often about these things. They would not allow their life to be filled up with small, insignificant matters until there was no room left for this. But Lord, they would see the truth of it now. We ask, Lord, that you would do what only you can do, and that is to change them, to transform them, and to save them. And So Lord, as your people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we thank you. And we do ask these things in his name. Amen.